Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. Boarded Window by Ambrose Bierce. In 1830, only a few miles away from what is now the great city of Cincinnati, lay an immense and almost unbroken forest. The whole region was sparsely settled by the people of the frontier, restless souls who no sooner had hewn fairly habitable homes out of the wilderness and attained to that degree of prosperity which today we should call indigence. Then, impelled by some mysterious impulse of their nature, they abandoned all and pushed farther westward to encounter new perils and privations in the effort to regain the meager comforts which they had voluntarily renounced. Many of them had already forsaken that region for the remoter settlements, but among those remaining was one who had been of those first arriving he lived alone in a house of logs, surrounded on all sides by the great forest, of whose gloom and silence he seemed a part, for no one had ever known him to smile, nor speak a needless word. His simple wants were supplied by the sale or barter of skins of wild animals in the river town, for not a thing did he grow upon the land, which, if needful, he might have claimed by right of undisturbed possession. There were evidences of improvement. A few acres of ground immediately about the house had once been cleared of its trees, the decayed stumps of which were half concealed by the new growth that had been suffered to repair the ravage wrought by the axe. Apparently the man's zeal for agriculture had burned with a failing flame, expiring in penitential ashes. The little log house with its chimney of sticks its roof of warping clapboards weighted with traversing poles and its chinking of clay had a single door and directly opposite a window. The latter, however, was boarded up. Nobody could remember a time when it was not, and none knew why it was so closed. Certainly not because of the occupant's dislike of light and air, for on those rare occasions when a hunter had passed that lonely spot, the recluse had commonly been seen sunning himself on his doorstep if heaven had provided sunshine for his need. I fancy there are few persons living today who ever knew the secret of that window. But I am one, as you shall see. The man's name was said to be Murlock. He was apparently 70 years old, actually about 50. Something besides years had had a hand in his aging. His hair and long, full beard were white, his gray, lusterless eyes sunken, his face singularly seamed with wrinkles which appeared to belong to two intersecting systems. In figure, he was tall and spare, with a stoop of the shoulders, a burden-bearer. I never saw him. These particulars I learned from my grandfather, from whom, also, I got the man's story when I was a lad. He had known him when living nearby in that early day. One day, 
Murlock was found in his cabin, dead. It was not a time and place for coroners and newspapers, and I suppose it was agreed that he had died from natural causes, or I should have been told and should remember. I know only that with what was probably a sense of the fitness of things, the body was buried near the cabin, alongside the grave of his wife, who had preceded him by so many years that local tradition had retained hardly a hint of her existence. That closes the final chapter on this true story, excepting indeed the circumstance that many years afterward, in company with an equally intrepid spirit, I penetrated to the place and ventured near enough to the ruined cabin to throw a stone against it and ran away to avoid the ghost which every well-informed boy thereabout knew haunted the spot. But there is an earlier chapter, that supplied by my grandfather. When Murloc built his cabin and began laying sturdily about with his axe to hew out a farm, the rifle meanwhile his means of support, he was young, strong, and full of hope. In that eastern country whence he came, he had married, as was the fashion, a young woman in all ways worthy of his honest devotion, who shared the dangers and privations of his lot with a willing spirit and light heart. There is no known record of her name. Of her charms of mind and person, tradition is silent, and the doubter is at liberty to entertain his doubt. But God forbid that I should share it. Of their affection and happiness, there is abundant assurance in every added day of the man's widowed life. For what but the magnetism of a blessed memory could have chained that venturesome spirit to a lot like that? One day, Murloc returned from gunning in a distant part of the forest to find his wife prostrate with fever and delirious. There was no physician within miles, no neighbor, nor was she in a condition to be left to summon help. So he set about the task of nursing her back to health. But at the end of the third day, she fell into unconsciousness and so passed away, apparently with never a gleam of returning reason. From what we know of a nature like his, we may venture to sketch in some of the details of the outline picture drawn by my grandfather. When convinced that she was dead, Murlock had sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for burial. In performance of this sacred duty, he blundered now and again, did certain things incorrectly, and others which he did correctly were done over and over. His occasional failures to accomplish some simple and ordinary act filled him with astonishment, like that of a drunken man who wonders at the suspension of familiar natural laws. He was surprised, too, that he did not weep, surprised and a little ashamed. Surely it is unkind not to weep for the dead. Tomorrow, he said aloud. I shall have to make the coffin and dig the grave, and then I shall miss her when she is no longer in sight. But now she's dead, of course. But it is all right. It 
must be alright somehow. Things cannot be so bad as they seem. He stood over the body in the fading light, adjusting the hair and putting the finishing touches to the simple toilet, doing all mechanically with soulless care. And still, through his consciousness, ran an undersense of conviction that all was right, that he should have her again as before, and everything explained. He had had no experience in grief. His capacity had not been enlarged by use. His heart could not contain it all, nor his imagination rightly conceive it. He did not know he was so hard struck. That knowledge would come later and never go. Grief is an artist of powers as various as the instruments upon which he plays his dirges for the dead, evoking from some the sharpest, shrillest notes, from others the low, grave chords that throb recurrent like the slow beating of a distant drum. Some natures it startles, some it stupefies. To one it comes like the stroke of an arrow, stinging all the sensibilities to a keener life, to another as the blow of a bludgeon, which in crushing benumbs. We may conceive Murloc to have been that way affected, for, and here we are upon surer ground than that of conjecture, no sooner had he finished his pious work than sinking into a chair by the side of the table upon which the body lay, and noting how white the profile showed in the deepening gloom, he laid his arms upon the table's edge and dropped his face into them, tearless yet and unutterably weary. At that moment, came in through the open window a long, wailing sound, like the cry of a lost child in the far deeps of the darkening wood. But the man did not move. Again, and nearer than before, sounded that unearthly cry upon his failing sense. Perhaps it was a wild beast. Perhaps it was a dream. For Murloc was asleep. Some hours later, as it afterward appeared, this unfaithful watcher awoke, and lifting his head from his arms, intently listened. He knew not why. There, in the black darkness by the side of the dead, recalling all without a shock, he strained his eyes to see. He knew not what. His senses were all alert. His breath was suspended. His blood had stilled its tides, as if to assist the silence. Who, what had waked him, and where was it? Suddenly, the table shook beneath his arms, and at the same moment he heard, or fancied that he heard, a light, soft step, another, sounds as of bare feet upon the floor. He was terrified beyond the power to cry out or move. Perforce, he waited waited there in the darkness through seeming centuries of such dread as one may know yet live to tell. He tried vainly to speak the dead woman's name, vainly to stretch forth his hand across the table to learn if she were there. His throat was powerless, his arms and hands were like lead. Then occurred something most frightful. 
Some heavy body seemed hurled against the table with an impetus that pushed it against his breast so sharply as nearly to overthrow him, and at the same instant he heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor with so violent a thump that the whole house was shaken by the impact. A scuffling ensued, and a confusion of sounds impossible to describe. Murlock had risen to his feet. Fear had by excess forfeited control of his faculties. He flung his hands upon the table. Nothing was there. There was a point in which terror may turn to madness, and madness incites to action. With no definite intent, with no motive but the wayward impulse of a madman, Murlock sprang to the wall. With a little groping, seized his loaded rifle, and without aim, discharged it. By the flash which lit up the room with a vivid illumination, he saw an enormous panther dragging the dead woman toward the window. Its teeth were fixed in her throat. And there was darkness, blacker than before, and silence. And when he returned to consciousness, the sun was high in the wood vocal with songs of birds. The body lay near the window, where the beast had left it when, frightened away by the flash and report of the rifle, the clothing was deranged, the long hair in disorder, and limbs laying anyhow. From the throat, dreadfully lacerated, had issued a pool of blood, not yet entirely coagulated. The ribbon with which he had bound the wrists was broken. The hands were tightly clenched between the teeth as a fragment of the animal's ear. John Mortensen's Funeral by Ambrose Bierce John Mortensen was dead. His lines in the tragedy of man had all been spoken, and he had left the stage. The body rested in a fine mahogany coffin fitted with a plate of glass. All arrangements for the funeral had been so well attended to that had the deceased known he would doubtless have approved. The face, as it showed under the glass, was not disagreeable to look upon. It bore a faint smile, and as the death had been painless, had not been distorted beyond the repairing power of the undertaker. At two o'clock of the afternoon, the friends were to assemble to pay their last tribute of respect to one who had no further need of friends and respect. 
The surviving members of the family came severely every few minutes to the casket and wept above the placid features beneath the glass. This did them no good. It did no good to John Mortensen. But in the presence of death, reason and philosophy are silent. As the hour of two approached, the friends began to arrive and after offering such consolation to the stricken relatives as the proprieties of the occasion required, solemnly seated themselves about the room with an augmented consciousness of their importance in the scheme funereal. Then the minister came, and in that overshadowing presence the lesser lights went into eclipse. His entrance was followed by that of the widow, whose lamentations filled the room. She approached the casket, and after leaning her face against the cold glass for a moment, was gently led to a seat near her daughter. Mournfully and low, the man of God began his eulogy of the dead, and his doleful voice mingled with the sobbing, which was its purpose to stimulate and sustain, rose and fell, seemed to come and go, like the sound of a sullen sea. The gloomy day grew darker as he spoke. A curtain of cloud underspread the sky, and a few drops of rain fell audibly. It seemed as if all nature were weeping for John Mortensen. When the minister had finished his eulogy with prayer, a hymn was sung, and the pallbearers took their places beside the bier. As the last notes of the hymn died away, the widow ran to the coffin, cast herself upon it, and sobbed hysterically. Gradually, however, she yielded to dissuasion, becoming more composed. And as the minister was in the act of leading her away, her eyes sought the face of the dead beneath the glass. She threw up her arms, and with a shriek fell backward, insensible, the mourners sprang forward to the coffin, the friends followed, and as the clock on the mantel solemnly struck three, all were staring down upon the face of John Mortensen, deceased. They turned away, sick and faint. One man, trying in his terror to escape the awful sight, stumbled against the coffin so heavily as to knock away one of its frail supports. The coffin fell to the floor. The glass was shattered to bits by the concussion. From the opening crawled John Mortensen's cat, which lazily leapt to the floor, sat up, tranquilly wiped its crimson muzzle with a forepaw, then walked with dignity from the room. The Applicant 
by Ambrose Pierce. Pushing his adventurous shins through the deep snow that had fallen overnight, and encouraged by the glee of his little sister following in the open way that he made, a sturdy small boy, the son of Grayville's most distinguished citizen, struck his foot against something of which there was no visible sign on the surface of the snow. It is the purpose of this narrative to explain how it came to be there. No one who has had the advantage of passing through Grayville by day can have failed to observe the large stone building crowning the low hill to the north of the railway station, that is to say, to the right and going toward Great Mowbray. It is a somewhat dull-looking edifice of the early comatose order and appears to have been designed by an architect who shrank from publicity, and although unable to conceal his work, even compelled in this instance to set it on an eminence in the sight of men, did what he honestly could to ensure it against a second look. So far as concerns its outer and visible aspect, the Abersush home for old men is unquestionably inhospitable to human attention, but it is a building of great magnitude and cost its benevolent founder the profit of many a cargo of the teas and silks and spices that his ships brought up from the underworld when he was in trade in Boston, though the main expense was its endowment. Altogether, this reckless person had robbed his heirs at law of no less a sum than half a million dollars and flung it away in riotous giving. Possibly it was with a view to get out of sight of the silent big witness to his extravagance that he shortly afterward disposed of all his Grayville property that remained to him, turned his back upon the scene of his prodigality, and went off across the sea in one of his own ships. But the gossips who got their inspiration most directly from heaven declared that he went in search of a wife, a theory not easily reconciled with that of the village humorist, who solemnly averred that the bachelor philanthropist had departed this life, left Grayville to it, because the marriageable maidens had made it too hot to hold him. However this may have been, he had not returned, and although at long intervals there had come to Grayville in a desolatory way, vague rumors of his wanderings in strange lands. No one seemed certainly to know about him, and to the new generation he was no more than a name. But from above the portal of the home for old men, the name shouted in stone. Despite its unpromising exterior, the home is a fairly commodious place of retreat from the ills that its inmates have incurred by being poor and old and men. At the time, embraced in this brief chronicle, they were in number about a score, but in acerbity, querulousness, and general ingratitude, there could hardly be reckoned at fewer than a hundred. At least, that was the estimate of the superintendent, Mr. Silas Tillbody. It was Mr. Tillbody's steadfast conviction that always in admitting new old men to replace those who had gone to another and better home, the trustees had distinctly in will the infraction of his peace 
and the trial of his patience. In truth, the longer the institution was connected with him, the stronger was his feeling that the founder's scheme of benevolence was sadly impaired by providing any inmates at all. He had not much imagination, but with what he had, he was addicted to the reconstruction of the home for old men into a kind of castle in Spain, with himself as Castellan, hospitably entertaining about a score of sleek and prosperous middle-aged gentlemen, consummately good-humored and civilly willing to pay for their board and lodging. In this revised project of philanthropy, the trustees, to whom he was indebted for his office and responsible for his conduct, had not the happiness to appear. As to them, it was held by the village humorist, aforementioned, that in their management of the great charity, Providence had thoughtfully supplied an incentive to thrift. With the inference which he expected to be drawn from that view, we have nothing to do. It had neither support nor denial from the inmates, who certainly were most concerned. They lived out their little remnant of life, crept into graves neatly numbered, and were succeeded by other old men, as like them as could be desired by the adversary of peace. If the home was a place of punishment for the sin of unthrift, the veteran offenders sought justice with a persistence that attested the sincerity of their penitence. It is to one of these that the reader's attention is now invited. In the matter of attire, this person was not altogether engaging. But for this season, which was midwinter, a careless observer might have looked upon him as a clever device of the husbandman indisposed to share the fruits of his toil with the crows that toil not neither spin, an error that might not have been dispelled without longer and closer observation than he seemed to court. For his progress up Aversur Street toward the home in the gloom of the winter evening was not visibly faster than what might have been expected of a scarecrow blessed with youth, health, and discontent. The man was indisputably ill-clad, yet not without a certain fitness and good taste withal, for he was obviously an applicant for admittance to the home, where poverty was a qualification. In the army of indigence, the uniform is rags. They serve to distinguish the rank and file from the recruiting officers. As the old man, entering the gate of the grounds, shuffled up the broad walk already white with the fast-falling snow, which from time to time he feebly shook from his various coines of vantage on his person, he came under inspection of the large globe lamp that burned always by night over the great door of the building. As if unwilling to incur its revealing beams, he turned to the left and passing a considerable distance along the face of the building, rang at a smaller door emitting a dimmer ray that came from within through the fanlight and expended itself incuriously overhead. The door was opened by no less a personage than the great Mr. Tillbody himself. Observing his visitor, who at once uncovered and somewhat shortened the radius of the permanent curvature of his back, the great man gave visible token of neither surprise nor displeasure. Mr. Tillbody was indeed in an uncommonly good humor, a phenomenon ascribable doubtless to the cheerful influence of the season. For this was Christmas Eve, 
and the morrow would be that blessed 365th part of the year that all Christian souls set apart for mighty feats of goodness and joy. Mr. Tilbody was so full of the spirit of the season that his fat face and pale blue eyes, whose ineffectual fire served to distinguish it from an untimely summer squash, effused so genial a glow that it seemed a pity that he could not have lain down in it, basking in the consciousness of his own identity. He was hatted, booted, overcoated, and umbrellaed, as became a person who was about to expose himself to the night and the storm on an errand of charity. For Mr. Tilbody had just parted from his wife and children to go downtown and purchase the wherewithal to confirm the annual falsehood about the hunch-bellied saint who frequents the chimneys to reward little boys and girls who are good and especially truthful. So he did not invite the old man in, but saluted him cheerily. Hello, just in time. A moment later, you would have missed me. Come, I have no time to waste. We'll walk a little way together. Thank you, said the old man, upon whose thin and white but not ignoble face, the light from the open door showed an expression that was perhaps disappointment. But if the trustees, if my application... The trustees, Mr. Tilbody said, closing more doors than one and cutting off two kinds of light, have agreed that your application disagrees with them. Certain sentiments are inappropriate to Christmas tide, but humor, like death, has all seasons for his own. Oh, my God, cried the old man in so thin and husky a tone that the invocation was anything but impressive, and to at least one of his two auditors sounded indeed somewhat ludicrous. To the other, but that is a matter which laymen are devoid of the light to expound. Yes, continued Mr. Tilbody, accommodating his gait to that of his companion, who was mechanically and not very successfully retracing the track that he had made through the snow. They have decided that uh, under the circumstances, under the very peculiar circumstances, you understand, it would be inexpedient to admit you. As superintendent and ex officio secretary of the Honorable Board. As Mr. Tilbody read his title clear, the magnitude of the big building seen through its veil of falling snow appeared to suffer somewhat in comparison. It is my duty to inform you that, in the words of Deacon Byram, the chairman, your presence in the home would under the circumstances, be peculiarly embarrassing. I felt it my duty to submit to the Honorable Board the statement that you made to me yesterday of your needs, your physical condition, and the trials which it has pleased Providence to send upon you in your very proper effort to present your claims in person. But, after careful, and I may say prayerful, consideration of your case, with something too I trust of the large charitableness appropriate to this season, it was decided 
that we would not be justified in doing anything likely to impair the usefulness of the institution entrusted under providence to our care. They had now passed out of the grounds. The street lamp opposite the gate was dimly visible through the snow. Already the old man's former track was obliterated, and he seemed uncertain as to which way he should go. Mr. Tilbody had drawn a little away from him, but paused and turned half toward him, apparently reluctant to forgo the continuing opportunity. Under the circumstances, he resumed, the decision... But the old man was inaccessible to the suasion of his verbosity. He had crossed the street into a vacant lot and was going forward rather deviously toward nowhere in particular, which, he having nowhere in particular to go to, was not so reasonless a proceeding as it looked. And that is how it happened, that the next morning, when the church bells of all Grayville were ringing with an added unction appropriate to the day, the sturdy little son of Deacon Byron, breaking away through the snow to the place of worship, struck his foot against the body of a Mesa Abersush, philanthropist. All music and audio production by Bob Familiar. All music by Bob Familiar and Mantray, with Cal Weston, Paul Bilbro, and now including John Gunther. All narration by Bob Bilbro. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana. Mm-hmm.